Hey everyone, Simba Kader here and you're listening to the MLOps Weekly Podcast. This week I'm speaking with Vero, who's the CEO of Alahai. In this episode, we'll really dive into what it means to have an end-to-end MLOps platform and how that compares with best-in-class vendors, when you need it, the problems it solves, proprietary versus open source. It'll be full of great information. So let's dive in. Vero, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Thanks, Ian Ba. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. It's cool to have you on. I know we've like seen each other a million times at different conferences. We never really talked about it. I'd love to learn more about your journey to starting Valahai. What got you there? What made you decide to start Valahai? Oh, that's a big question. For me, personally, the motivation has always been kind of pushing machine learning forward on a global scale. So I've been following machine learning and deep learning for quite some time. And I really saw the potential to change the world, whether it was through automation of work or scalability of things that were not scalable before. That's how I really condensed the impact of deep learning. We can scale new businesses that were not possible to scale. And that then brings price down and gives access to a lot of things. For instance, we work a lot with healthcare. So let's say we can automate diagnostics. We can bring that to a lot of countries at an affordable cost. If we don't have to recruit doctors, have to train as many doctors to treat as many patients, like these kinds of things that are, I want to say, almost low-hanging fruits. Obviously, these are like difficult problems. There's a lot of regulation, but there's so many things that are somewhat obvious that we are going to solve with enough elbow grease and time put into building models and putting them into production that will make the world a better place. And I really wanted to kind of push that market forward on all industries. So that's why I wanted to go into tooling in machine learning. And that's kind of why I am here, why I'm one of the founders of Olohai. For our listeners who don't know, could you kind of give the general pitch of what Valahai is? So we're an MLOps platform for what we call machine learning pioneers. And the way we define that is companies that are building either core features of their product or then the entire product IP on top of machine learning. And this, of course, in contrast to things like, let's say, internal reporting tools, stuff like that. The reason why we think these are very different is that when you're building some one-off reporting for internal use cases, you don't really have to employ as as rigorous software development practices as you need when you're really building a product that you're constantly evolving. So we've really focused on that part where you're building products that are constantly evolving. You need to scale your teams, scale the compute, scale the processes, bring in more models all the time. When you say MLOS platform, that means a lot of things to a lot of different people. What does that mean to you? What are the pillars? What are the kind of components that make up Valhai? Great question. For us, it's orchestration. So we run, spin up your machines, we deploy Docker images, ingest code, transfer data. So orchestration part in your environment, then version control and reproducibility, both for exploration. So we all know in machine learning, there's often like an exploratory workflow, and then you build that into production. So we do the reproducibility and version control, both for exploration. And then when you go and productionalize those models into automatic retraining pipelines and then deployment. So there's kind of a split, and I know it's imperfect, but some people would kind of call things end-to-end platforms and some things more like best-in-class vendors. On that spectrum, and again, I know it's imperfect, but on that spectrum, where do you kind of feel that Bellahai lives? For me, it's more on the end-to-end side of the spectrum. Of course, there's still stuff that we don't do. Like we don't have a feature store, for instance, if you're dealing with unstructured data, stuff like that. Also. For instance, model monitoring is something where we don't have like a huge amount of offering. Even with end-to-end, this is a very large industry. And then use cases are so different that 
monitoring for machine vision is a completely different beast than it is for structured data. What is drift detection for LiDAR scans, for instance, stuff like this. So I'm sure that like even with the biggest end-to-end tool, there's going to be like best-in-breed solutions that might be somewhat industry-specific. But we try and keep in the area where it does the things that can be generalized for a vast majority of use cases, kind of where we try and play with our product. One thing that, especially in orchestration, that at least I see, is a lot of people are coming from kind of in-house, hack-together things on top of Airflow, for example, or if even that. When you talk to someone like that, or if let's say a listener is like, hey, yeah, we kind of are learning about MLOps, we kind of just have hacky systems on our airflow, and we are thinking about MLOps, what would you say to someone like that? What makes something like Valhai different? What are the key problems you solve that aren't solved by more generic, like hyper-generic solutions? There's so many things. One of the difficulties with, especially companies that are early, if they're kind of doing this for the very first time, A lot of data science teams don't come from software development background, first of all. They haven't gone through that progression that we kind of in software development world had where we went from like releasing on CD-ROMs and then not having version control and everything was a pain to the ability of like deploying several times an hour in best cases into production. So first of all, they have a very different perspective from software development. Then if they're kind of still building their first thing and it's barely in production, There's relatively little you can say. Usually we engage when teams have a few models in production. They've already kind of hit that wall of like, hey, we have five new data scientists coming next week. I don't think they can be effective in the next six months because there's just so much overhead to understand all the in-house built stuff. And we really realize that we're kind of hitting the wall. But if I tried to say something and when we do meet with like these very early, early teams that are not really coming to us with the pain already, but we have to kind of instill the pain in them. We like to talk about things like you have to really go back to business. What is the impact of this work you're doing? Because a lot of teams are not very clear on that, but there's a business goal behind this. It's not research anymore. We're in the real world now. We're trying to move some needle somewhere. And then we need to kind of get that person in the same room with the person who's spending wild amounts of time fixing a pipeline, like two months fixing a pipeline that should be done in two hours. And then having that understanding throughout the organization that if this time, that this work that takes you two months today would happen in two hours, that would have a very concrete impact on business. And that's when kind of like the light start lighting up in people's heads. But if we can't make that connection with business, it's usually very difficult to get an engagement with teams. As I'm thinking about that, a lot of what you're talking about makes sense. It's very like ops is operations. And if you don't have something, there's no reason to operationalize in the sense of our efficiency don't really make sense. Iteration times doesn't make sense because you don't have anything yet. It's like adding process before you've even done the thing once. You've talked a bit about like what kind of the final state looks like. And I think that's kind of been an open question in MLOps. And I'd love to get your take. Like, What does MLOps look like when it's done well? What are we all aiming for? What does kind of a gold standard workflow look like? For me, there's a few things. I don't think there's maybe a one solution fits all or a same metric fits all. But I'll give you a few things that I think I see with the best teams that are out there. They usually think a lot about velocity of engineering. So like how fast can we deploy new things to the product? When you're starting to think in those terms, that's usually already like a huge mental leap 
in the way you work. Then going from there, how does that then reflect on the ways of working? We notice that most companies that go into production, they don't have a single model. They deploy a model for a single customer, but then they realize that they very quickly have to train a model for every single factory, for instance, or every single new geography that comes on board or every single customer specific data. Usually the dimensionality goes through the roof when business starts running. You have things like a single POC that was built for a customer took six months and all of a sudden you have a sales team bringing on 20 new clients and then you would have to fine tune the model for each one of those 20 new customers in the next month to close a sale. But you're looking at like four month long development period to get through it per customer. Getting to a point where that dimensionality gets trivial. I mean, new customer coming in, you being able to press a single button as even the salesperson, somebody who's not related to the actual training process themselves, and being able to train or fine-tune a customer-specific model that then becomes the product for that customer. I think that's kind of one of the gold standards that we usually talk about a lot. So like completely automated pipelines. And then because the world is never perfect, those pipelines break at some point. Like it's never going to be perfect, right? How fast are you able to iterate back to the data science who then fixes the problem, whether it's got to do with your data or with the model or the code itself and be able to push that change in the production? I think those two things like the iteration speed and how fast we're able to grow that dimensionality are a big guiding light for a lot of product companies. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. I think it's, these components of philosophy, of reliability, this iteration time. At least for us, we think a lot also about collaboration. How can we work together and do things better as a team and getting like that second order effect? Slightly different, you all have taken the approach of being proprietary. There are a lot of open source different tools and players in different spaces. As you think about open source versus proprietary, how do you think about that? I'd just love to just generically get your thoughts on it and then we can dive deeper. I'm a big fan of open source, first of all. I think open source is basically running the world. I think the problem with open source in a lot of industries is how do you build a business around it? And the danger of a fully open source solution is that if you're not able to build a sustainable business, the support will go away at some point. And especially if you're dealing with business critical systems, like at least enterprises, they will need somebody to offer that premium service. I think just looking back in our industry, it's been really difficult for a lot of open source solutions out there. Like we've lost a lot of good teams, a lot of good products because they quite frankly were not able to build a business. And that's been one of the reasons why we kind of haven't been able to jump on that wagon because we never really saw that direction on where can you make a sustainable business in this industry and then build a fully open source solution. That would be just wrong against our customers, right? We'd be able to run with some VC money for three, four years. And then we'd get a lot of people on board. And then at the end, we wouldn't be there to maintain it. And the project would die eventually. So I think that's a real danger that a lot of companies are not looking into. Like, how does that sustainability look like in the long run? I think our industry, because of various things, is a little bit difficult for the model. One of them is that, like I said, a lot of data science teams don't come from an engineering background. They come from a research background. If we look at, of course, classically software development, Developer tooling has been a field where open source has been a really, really great way to build businesses, right? I think that there's a fundamental difference in a lot of these teams because they are not able to maintain and install software on the same level as software teams are. 
And that fundamentally, they just need more help and handholding to get this stuff up and running. And I think it's also quite a tall order. Like we have people who are PhDs in mathematics or statistical methods. And then on top of that, they need to be software developers, engineers, and then on top of that, like IT and DevOps capabilities. That's quite a lot to ask for people. And that's what you need, quite frankly, to deploy these most complicated orchestration tools out there. There's a lot of friction in the open source field for MLOps products specifically. That's at least my opinion. I think that's also one of the few reasons why we are at least, if not the only, but one of the very few companies that have been able to get break even and build a sustainable business in this particular field. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. I think it's quite rare in MLOps to see companies that are actually, even if it's just a little bit profitable, at least some level of business that makes sense, especially Given all the hype that used to exist around it, I think now we're seeing a lot more companies have to figure out how to do that the hard way as things change. But it is a huge accomplishment that you're able to do that. We talked a lot about like longevity, and I think it's a huge part of any buyer, anyone thinking about bringing on a tool. Like it's one thing that everyone should look at. In my opinion, is okay. Like if you're bringing this thing on, you're investing in the long term. You're kind of like an investor in a company in a funny way. Do you believe not just will this product solve a problem for you? But especially if we're talking about like bigger deal size or critical infrastructure, like, do you believe in this company? Do you think it makes sense? Do you think it'll be around in five years or whatever your time frame is? I mean, if you're a Fortune 100 that could be talking 10 years, is there a storyline there? I'm curious about kind of the flip side of it. We're talking about like longevity and like the once it's there, making sure it stays. And I'm curious about when you bring on and onboard a new customer. And I'm thinking of this from the perspective of someone who's kind of starting to onboard MLOps. What are the steps you take? I know there's a million things you do, but just if you could kind of in broad strokes describe what it looks like to go from no MLOps or a homegrown kind of solution to like something that's a little more standard, stable, and legitimate. How do you help people through that process? Yeah, us as a company, that's one of the areas where we've spent the most time on, like figuring out those processes of onboarding. The way it works for us, if I'm going like very concretely, we go through a trial where we, in the very beginning, tie everything into business values. Like I said, if we can't get that business connection, it's usually not going to go very well in the end, especially in this particular market. If we work with projects that don't have a business impact, these teams are not eventually going to exist. And it's also a big investment for us in the beginning. It just doesn't make sense for anybody. We work a lot with the teams to figure out, like, why is this actually important? Why are you setting out on this journey? Why are you investing time and effort and eventually money for licenses to move faster, essentially? What's going to be that impact? And once we understand what that impact is, we try and quantize it. So, okay, if we're able to build pipelines from zero to this in this particular time compared to what it's taking now, what would be the impact? And then we verify that with business. Once we have a good understanding on that, that's when we only engage on the technical side. And that's where we do basic stuff like installation. We usually have to work with IT, provide a lot of audit stuff, make sure that we comply with their security standards, stuff like that. That's in itself already somewhat of a large engagement of course, depending on the size of company. So we help the data science team through it. Usually they're not like security professionals, so it's really hard for them to drive that conversation. We help them get through IT to get installations on. Then we go to onboarding, where we usually do a short training in the beginning. 
we actually take customers' own existing real-world project and help them go through that project and how to move that on Valaha and how to get it up and running. And usually within that two-week timeframe that we serve for these trials is when we get the first pipelines up and running and then prove those quantized requirements that we had in the beginning. Then we have like 24-7 support available for customers to ask. They usually run into a lot of like very simple stuff, like even just basic Python errors. We try and make sure that we get through all of that relatively quickly so nobody gets stuck in that first two weeks and then gets to prove that we are able to deliver that value that we proved. And then once we get to that actual engagement, signing contracts, stuff like that, after that, of course, that onboarding then goes from usually just that one single trial team to helping other teams get onboarded and then grow and grow in organizations. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. I think it even helps us to lay them out that way. I think a lot of people forget the little pieces. There's so many teams that have to come into play. IT, we deal with a lot. I'm sure customers deal with them a lot too. Figuring out how to work through that process, how to do it efficiently. And in the end, like all that matters is business value. And so all these things, they, they have reason to exist, right? Like obviously like security review exists for a very good reason. Yes. But the ability to kind of like efficiently get through these processes so that you can actually show the value in the end, justify the investment, justify the time investment is something that I think a lot of people don't factor into their timelines. And I think it's really important. Even like for us, like sometimes we'll start parallelizing that. As we get towards the end, let's start doing that now because it's going to take a few intro meetings before we can get to the technical to try and like kind of make these things line up so that they all happen at once. Yeah, and I think it's a value driver for the companies themselves too because again, these teams are almost always new. They've never run a procurement process inside the organization. They're often quite lost on like how to even buy software and how to get it installed. So the fact that we're able to take some of that burden off their backs and learning how do we deal with security, how do we make compliance with whatever like security framework we're working with and so on, it's a big, big value add for the teams. Quite frankly, it would be quite a lot to ask for, again, a data scientist on top of everything else. Now you have to be a security audit expert. Yeah, it's a funny skill, the ability to kind of get new initiatives through. It's a skill that vendors have gone very good at in a funny way. And it's something that salespeople, other than obviously like helping you evaluate, helping you kind of figure out your whole process around that. A lot of what our sales does is just help the org navigate their own organization sometimes. Yep. Especially with big companies, it's like you kind of have to go to a lot of different places. And if you forget a place, like it can like make you lose like a month or two, you have to rewind and it's a lot of pain that can be avoided if you kind of know what you're doing from the beginning. Obviously, the thing that is on everyone's mind in machine learning and data science is the kind of rise of LLMs. For ML and MLOps teams especially, I think it creates a lot of confusion and uncertainty. I would love to get your take. Like, How are things changing and how is ML and MLOps evolving in the face of LLMs? It's a great question. I think, honestly, it's a bit early to say how will MLOps itself evolve in the face of LLMs, just because it's so early for most projects. Where we see LLMs today is mostly using closed APIs. However, the field that we are in, like I talked about this machine learning pioneers building products, we see like four fundamental problems for the teams, which is like basically all of it's on lack of control meaning lack of control over your data. If you're dealing with healthcare, defense, 
customer data, it's kind of difficult to send all of your data into a third-party API and not be sure what happens behind it and so on. Secondly, cost on price, which is assessing like what will this cost, especially if it grows rapidly, has been quite difficult for a lot of teams that we've talked to. And the pricing tends to get out of hand really quickly when things start moving, when you start to hit that exponential growth curve. Thirdly, service. So especially if you're dealing with critical products, dealing with these APIs is kind of like dealing with an API where somebody changes the API definition without telling you how it changed. Somebody updates the model and all of a sudden you have regression. You have no idea about it beforehand. Something that worked yesterday is not working today and you have no idea how to fix it or if you can fix it anymore. It's really difficult to build your business on top of an API like that. And then lastly, lack of control on IP. So if everything your product is, is someone else's closed charge system, it's pretty difficult to see where the real like value generation of the company is happening. in. And due to these limiting factors, I personally am a big fan of open source foundational models. I think that's going to be the way. I think it's going to be better for everybody in the end, that nobody owns the best only LLM out there. And I think that that's the direction that as a society, it would be better if we can drive towards that goal. And I think that that's generally where the market is headed towards. I really think that these closed source APIs, they definitely have a moat in a lot of use cases today, but I think that moat is getting smaller and smaller every day. And the models that are coming out, they're getting better exponentially all the time. This is a very, very clear indication that the open source models are getting really good, really fast. Pretty much every week, there's a new model. And I think that that's what the MLOps field is going to gravitate towards. Like, how do I fine tune? How do I manage these open source foundational models? You're going to do like a test on closed APIs, and then you move to open source models to kind of build that product for real. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. I totally agree. I think we've already seen with the GPT APIs, they go down a lot. Like the latency is pretty hard to predict, like where things happen. And like you said, the model gets changed kind of underneath you sometimes, which is why I'm under the belief that there's no such thing today as a true enterprise grade LLM application or enterprise grade prototypes. But I don't think we've really learned how to actually productionize these things. I also think that the cost component is a component a lot of people ignore. But let's say you're dealing with something like fraud detection. Let's say your visa or something. I don't know. I think of how many recommendations like YouTube or Spotify make just like for a single user in a single day. Now, let's say each prediction costs a penny, if that. Let's just say a penny make the numbers easy. You're spending like dollars per user per day. Yeah, yeah. and it's probably more today, right? Yeah, it just doesn't make sense. And also then you add the latency on top of it and all the other things. I think that you mentioned deep learning. One thing I've always thought to be true is that in the early days of deep learning, it was kind of this implication that traditional machine learning was dead. I think that the same thing is kind of going to happen again, where it's like, okay, like deep learning, like sure, it panned out. Like There's a lot of value that's created deep learning. Yes. I mean, you could argue that LMs are more or less the continuation of that. But it's like the random forest and the boost models, like they're not going to go away. And in my opinion, they're still going to be the most common model that you interact with, even if you don't notice it or don't know, in five years. Yep. Yeah, I think that being true, I think that there'll be kind of this unification a bit of MLOps and LLM ops or whatever. Because lots of the problems you mentioned, they just remind me of deep learning problems. 
Like how do you handle a model that's a black box? The difference is that you don't own the model, but the open source ones you do, and the changing it goes away when you go open source. So it kind of just looks like a unique type of model, deep learning model, which kind of is the same problem space as MLOps, except for prompts, which is a new thing. Yeah, I think a lot of people forget maybe seven years ago, something like that, we had the Google Machine Vision API come out. And then there was a ton of machine vision models. And then people were like, well, building your own machine vision models doesn't make sense anymore because the Google Machine Vision API will take care of everything. Nowadays, if somebody said that, they'd be like, you're crazy. (laughs) There's no way this single API is going to take care of the complexities and the challenges that we're facing with machine vision. It's an absurd statement. I think that that is kind of where these LLMs are headed to. I do think that there's a much larger value capture that these closed source LLMs are going to be able to make than machine vision APIs, don't get me wrong. But at the same time, I think it's still quite limited in terms of like what can be done once open source models get there and people really start building tools and products on top of open source LLMs and fine tuning them. So let's say you run an MLOps team right now at a big organization. How should you be thinking? Should you be evolving your platform with this in mind? Do you think it's going to be a whole different platform for LLMs? How would you move forward knowing that, okay, today it's not ready, but we're definitely moving in that direction for potentially like a, a large percentage of your ML? How would you change your platform, if at all? It depends on what layer. Where we are, concentrating on reproducibility, orchestration, building your pipelines, it looks exactly the same as any other fine-tuning of model or training of any other model. There's very little changes in terms of orchestration for fine-tuning Llama 2 compared to fine-tuning something like YOLO 5. It's virtually the same thing. Your data set is, in one sense, it's images. In the other one, it's natural language. Aside from that, there's very little in terms of how do we orchestrate it? How do we run these operations? How do we deploy the models? We actually have plenty of customers that went overnight into like fine-tuning LLMs on top of Alohai without us making any changes to the platform. I don't know if that's going to be true forever, but at least for now, it seems like there's very little. And then when we go into like really analyzing the model and deep into kind of understanding the model itself, I think that's probably where the changes are much bigger and labeling your data, stuff like that. But what comes to training of the models, fine-tuning models, building pipelines, deploying, is very similar. I remember when we released our LLM, kind of more RAG-focused functionality into feature form, it took one engineer one week, more or less, to like get it up because 90% of it was the same. The only thing that was different was this new idea of a vector DB. Embeddings weren't really new, but we didn't support them at the time. It was a pretty quick change because in practice, it looks very similar. Prompt is just a new type of feature. It's making a prediction, and the way you handle that prediction is not that different from handling a prediction for NLP. Obviously, prompts are a little different, but in some ways, they are very different. In other ways, you can kind of abstract that difference away. And I think that there's a lot more overlap between them than there is differences. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think the differences will get handled by unique new products, which will, I think, be integrated into these platforms. But I actually don't really view an LLM ops platform and an ML ops platform to be two separate platforms as much as. It's part of one whole. I think that's our future and where things are going. I think it just makes sense because you're just going to want to use the same data and the same sort of like monitoring for these different types of models. You're not going to want to have a whole monitoring stack for like your chatbot and then have a whole other monitoring stack for your fraud detection. You kind of want to unify these things. Just thinking about 
Valo High thinking about MLOps, what are you most excited for? Now that we're looking forward to a bit of like kind of a great unknown, what are you most excited about? It has to be on the LLM side still. Just the progress that the open source models are making, how little we've done, how little of the low-hanging fruits that are out there. I have to say it's not only LLMs, it's generative models, multimodality, like those things are so close, but at the same time, we haven't even graced the surface. Like we haven't even scratched the surface of it. I'm super excited. And one of the reasons why I'm so excited about it is I've talked a lot about the business. In the past, we really didn't see business engage or be the primary motor of driving these projects. Now it's completely changing, right? Every product owner, every CIO, every CTO, every CEO has used ChatGPT. They have their ideas on how to deploy this for their particular products, and they are driving the change, which means that all of a sudden, like business goals is a given, budgets is a given, the actual drive to go through with this is a given instead of us trying to kind of like teach these organizations that, hey, you need to really think about how does this impact the like bottom line in the end. So I think that this will really make it faster for organizations because now the amount of stakeholders is so much larger that are talking about these projects now. Yeah, I agree. I think that's what for me has been the coolest thing too, is that this kind of unexpected tailwind of not just in LLMs, but just in, I think, machine learning as a whole. I think it's just end users and end are expecting their applications to get smarter in every way. And they don't really care if it's an LLM or not. Like chatbots, sure, like maybe it's going to be much more LLM focused, but they kind of expect it for everything. And LLMs aren't exactly the answer for everything. So there's kind of this renewed extra push that we've been kind of this third wave of data that we're kind of about to ride, which is really exciting. Here, it's been really awesome to hear your, your insights on all of this. Thanks for hopping on. Always really, really good to catch up with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Simba, and happy holidays. Yeah, you too.